This is Paul Nobles from Eat Reform, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Susan Kleiner. Susan, why don't you introduce yourself a bit, tell people where they can find you, and go from there. Hi, Paul. It's so great to be here again. So yeah, I'm Dr. Susan Kleiner. I'm the founder and owner of High Performance Nutrition, LLC. I am a nutritionist who helps people achieve peak performance in every walk of their lives from, I like to say, the uh, locker room to the boardroom to the bedroom. Um, I can be found at drskleiner.com. Uh, I am on social media, Twitter and Instagram at Power Eat and Dr. Susan Kleiner on Facebook. Yeah, and if I say this almost all the time, if you're looking for a template similar to what Eat Reform looks like, New Power Eating is a great book for that, right? And you can pick it that up on Amazon. Um, in terms of Eat Reform, pretty obvious, right? Just go to eatreform.com. You can find us on Facebook. We have close to 1.5 million followers right now. And actually, we've been, um, we've uh, kind of Facebook changed the way they do things a little bit right now. And so um, it's been very motivating because virtually every post that I'm writing right now um, just goes crazy. And uh, we've, we've talked about sleep. We've talked about, you know, cortisol. We've talked about all these different things that honestly, most people take the perspective or most people that people follow on the internet they're going to take the perspective of, of dieting and kind of dieting all the time, right? And so when we talk about having food as an ally and food coming back, this is actually kind of new to a lot of people, right? Literally hundreds of thousands of people, you know? And so uh, be on the lookout because like I said, it's been very motivating to see so many. It's actually almost overwhelming because you know, when your posts start to get, you know, 500 comments and, and, you know, it, people want research and all these different things, it, it's a little overwhelming, but, but I'm having a good time with it. I, I have the best job in the world, right? We had a, we had a client um, that we featured on our main page that, that lost 120 pounds. Wow. Um, yeah. And so uh, it's just, it's a very big privilege for me to be able to help people with their health and, and allow them some, some ideas that just aren't really out there in the ether, right? They, they're well-known in, in bodybuilding circles or they're well-known in like performance nutrition circles, but most of those same principles do apply to regular people. Okay, so this is an interesting topic. And what I typically do is when I don't know something I'll spend days researching it just out of curiosity and things of this nature. And I saw another page post about mitochondria. And I thought to myself, I don't really know very much about this, right? I knew kind of the basics, you know, what you're always learning. It's the powerhouse of the cell, that kind of thing. Um, but what I wanted to talk to Susan about is just to ask her kind of the basics of, of mitochondria, how it affects aging, how it affects, you know, when you're, you're eating low, maybe eating low for a long time, when you're over consuming alcohol, 
you know, all of these different things, right? So why don't you start with giving us kind of the, the basics and assume that we don't know that mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell and then maybe start to give a, a time frame because if you're listening to this podcast, one of the things we kind of know is that you're usually between 40 and 60, right? And so these are some of the things that you'll have to start to think about as you start to build your health profile, as you start to build goals as you age, right? So why don't you give us the, the one-on-one on mitochondria? So mitochondria are so cool. And when you start to get into human biology, it, it, it becomes like the jaw-dropping story. Mitochondria, as we see them today in the cell, as uh, Paul said, are like their own little organs called organelles in the cell that are our energy plant, basically. That's where most of the energy production happens. What's so fascinating is that if we go all the way back to the beginning of life, mitochondria were probably started as independent cell structures or organ, organic structures that ultimately somehow fused with the cells that became the beginning of life and structures to produce some kind of a, of a living being. So they have their own DNA. There is mitochondrial DNA that is unique and, and they, they um, reproduce in our cells like our own big human cells reproduce as well. And so thinking that we have the place in our cells that actually are the energy plants and those singular energy plants within each cell can multiply. They can make more of themselves, meaning that you can be, you can have higher energy production or they can decrease, they can become dysfunctional, they can not work so well, they can become old aging energy plants that just aren't very good anymore. And so, and, and as those start to diminish and become fewer and fewer or more and more dysfunctional, they start to kind of cannibalize themselves. We call it autophagy. They start to, to destroy themselves and we decrease our ability to produce energy. So that is the basic bottom line. We have in singular organelles within our own cells. Now people used to think, and I remember I was just talking to someone when I said in high school, when I learned about mitochondria, which was, you know, a hundred years ago, I learned that mitochondria were only or predominantly in muscle cells. What we know today is that's not true. There's mitochondria in adipose tissue, in fat cells as well. And they're actually all over, but you know, the, the greatest abundance obviously need to be in our muscle cells, but they are also in our fat cells. And that has expanded this story on understanding um, maybe some part or one particular part of what might be going on in during obesity, 
overweight. Uh, and on the opposite side, people who we call constitutionally thin, who just everybody knows somebody like this. I call them hard gainers in sports nutrition. People that it's really, really hard to get them even to maintain a normal body weight um, and even harder to get them to build. So I wanted to kind of bring some questions to the table because like I said, the, um, I, it's rare that I get this opportunity where you know there's so little knowledge. I do remember, well, I'm not gonna bring that up. I will, that'll be later on. Um, in terms of the mitochondria reproduction, what things are favorable for mitochondria reproduction? Um, and then, you know, what can cause them to sort of, like you say, almost suffocate or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, and then is, would creatine play a role in any of this? So creatine, well, let, let's wait with creatine. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's start with what affects a mitochondrial life cycle. So just like us, we need to feed our mitochondria and there are really important nutrients for um, mitochondrial um, health and wellness, I guess is, is the way to put it. And so, uh, and the way we've done some of those studies is by looking at people who have been really critically ill and have not been eating and then watching and, and seeing the dysfunction of their mitochondria, wondering why even after they're out of the hospital, they should be so much healthier and they're still not, we see that their mitochondria are, are still somewhat uh, dysfunctional, some discovery of them being undernourished and that the whole body is clearly undernourished, people not eating well and a certain focus on nutrition. So first and foremost, really good healthy nutrition. And there's a long list of, of the roles of B vitamins and vitamin C and vitamin E, selenium, zinc, coenzyme Q10. Um, and, and, and just, it goes on and on and on. A host of nutrients really important to support mitochondrial health and function. So, so just good nutrition. Uh, the flip side of that is overnutrition of sugar and fat. And so in, in a, an environment of very high sugar and very high fat, we get um, decreased function and dysfunction of mitochondria. Um, and so, so that's kind of the, the nutrition side. Exercise, we know that, that when the body is calling for more energy, the more work that the, the mitochondria need to do, the more production of all the enzymes that allow the mitochondria to produce energy and the, and the high energy uh, compound is ATP. Many people may be aware of that. That's what comes out of mitochondria through a number of different cycles. And so, we can, or pathways. And so the more demand for the mitochondria to work, the better they work. Uh, it's kind of like blowing out the pipes, you know? We, we know that 
the more we exercise, the better we feel, the better so many systems function in our bodies. That is all the way down to my, at the mitochondrial level and, and the microscopic level clearly in the body. And so, so we are made to work, right? We are not made to be sedentary. And so exercise plays an important role. And in fact, we have discovered that different kinds of exercise have different impacts. And so, that's what, that's what I was going to ask you. So, yeah. you know, can you maybe explain the differences, right? Uh, you know, what role cardio might play, what role, you know, resistance training might play, things of that nature? Yeah. So strength training uses, if, you know, I don't want to get too, too nerdy in this, but, but strength training uses specifically non or anaerobic pathways of energy production. So one specific pathway of energy production. And there are three. So, so when we're doing strength training, we're using sort of one to two. When we do endurance training, we're using mostly one to two, but different ones and so that we rely on predominantly. When we do intermittent or high intensity, intermittent uh, intensity training, sorry, I've mixed up my words here, high intensity interval training, um, we actually use all three. And so again, we put the mitochondria to maximal work and we require the greatest recovery. And so all our systems are working more at full tilt. And in fact, the research has shown that while both, while strength training is super important for increasing your muscle and your physical fitness, uh, and your strength and power and endurance training is super important for your cardiovascular well-being and aerobic health, that when you do high intensity interval training, you actually have the biggest hit on your mitochondrial development and you will increase the numbers of mitochondria um, beyond what you do with only endurance training or only strength training. And so the recommendations that you should strength train, you know, three to four days a week, and you should do a couple of long distance endurance things a couple days a week, and you should do some high intensity training two to three times a week. That's what gives you sort of the, the most holistic or well-rounded impact on your total health and particularly impacts the mitochondria, which is why people say, I don't know why when I do HIIT training, I get the, big, the biggest physique results when I'm looking to taper. And that's because you are really hitting a very high energy demand, both during exercise and after using all the energetic pathways. Um, of course, if that's all you do, we want you to also do the other exercise, but, but it, it has this big bang for your, you know, buck on the minutes that you spend training. So first of all, if you're hearing the beeping, I, I just got a new computer. So all of the different little settings that you would have. So I apologize for that. If you are hearing that, um, that brings up a, sort of an interesting point because, you know, there's obviously a lot of people that are doing hit you know, uh, in something like CrossFit, 
five, six days a week. You mentioned specifically the recovery. And the reason why that's interesting to me is because, you know, right now you have all these different HRV devices, you know, I have my, my whoop um, on right now. And um, the one thing that I learned almost immediately from my whoop was first of all, sleep, but secondly, that I got a, actually a better physical response working out three to four days a week than I was getting five to six days a week. And then I also got a better response uh, because first of all, I mean, in that time, I was able to put on 10 to 15 pounds of muscle, right? So I was almost artificially holding back my muscle production. And then, you know, kind of, this was a concept that was introduced to me by uh, Alex Vieta, right? So Alex, part of the way that he sort of trains, he kind of has the same thing that you're talking about. He's training for maximal strength, also long endurance. Um, doesn't really do that much with hit, but he would be very good at it if he did. Um, but I think he's really more focused on the, the two outer sides, which like you said, work on different energy production. Um, walk me through like what you think the ideal scenario would be there. Because like you said, the recovery for a hit is going to be higher. Now, if you do the same thing over and over and over again, your body will adjust. We did that podcast like two weeks ago related to balance and homeostasis. And so, you know, the answer to, you know, getting better at, at CrossFit might be to do more CrossFit, right? And if you're one of the five best people in the world, do that, right? But if you're like me and like the 30,000 CrossFitter, you know, <laughs> Um, and, and you're really, you know, looking to be able to go to the beach and kind of people know you work out, a, a broader plan might actually work out. So maybe, maybe give some thoughts on that. So the recovery piece is super important. And, um, you know, our very good friend, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, that's his, like, like, that's it with him. It's, it's all about recovery. <laughs> and of course, um, so, so we always have to talk about a little bit of the nuance. So if you're doing a, a, you know, an eight minute hit session, but you're doing a two hour lifting session, your recovery, your recovery for your eight minute hit session is not bigger than your two hour lifting session, just to be clear, but it's minute to minute when we're, when we're comparing the amount of time and intensity of the, of the different exercise formats. And so, so at any time for any exercise session, recovery is super important. As I said, all the way down to the mitochondria, if they're not refed, if they've used up all of their ingredients for manufacturing energy, and then you ask, you, you put an energy demand in again, but you don't have the ingredients to bake that cake. You just can't do it. And so you may think you're doing it, but you're doing it at a lower energy level because the energy just isn't there. So, or you will start to tear down or break down um, 
various factors required to produce that energy. Let's say if you don't have enough carbohydrate, you may start to break down your protein so that you can have um, the associated carbohydrate left over after you've broken down proteins. And so all of that is going into, we're, gonna, we're going back to cortisol production here, but that's what you're doing. You are overstressing. So you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. You're not maximizing your time. So I want to back up to the ingredients because I know you mentioned, you know, kind of overconsumption of sugar and fat and how that can be negative for mitochondria. But when you say, what are the ingredients to feed your mitochondria? You mean what? So the vitamins, the minerals, all the, certainly the macronutrients, all of the, the factors in there are, you know, there's, there's, there's so much. You had also asked about creatine and this kind of can circle back to creatine. Um, so, so as again, we need the building blocks. We need the ingredients to produce energy. It doesn't just come out of thin air. It is taken from the food that we consume. Ideally that you're not breaking down your own tissues that you are, you are, um, metabolizing food into energy. That's the goal. And so um, at the cellular level, down inside the mitochondria, we have a, a high energy compound called adenosine triphosphate, ATP. That is the highest energy compound that we have. And it gets recycled over and over and over again. And we break the phosphate bonds. So that ATP, adenosine triphosphate, means that there's three phosphate bonds. Those are very high energy bonds. When we break it, we go to ADP, diphosphate. And then when we break it again, we go to AMP, monophosphate. And we have to recycle that phosphorus. We have to get it and we have to get it from somewhere. We have discovered that creatine can be um, kind of like an, an energy transport vessel, meaning that creatine um, is, is, the, is, a, is the rate limiting compound in delivering phosphate back to the energy cycles to make go from AMP to ADP to ATP. Creatine phosphate um, will will be will deliver those hot that that compound phosphate to to increase energy availability over short periods of time, and so when we consume creatine, it is helping us make energy in our anaerobic energy cycles, which is for short bursts of high intensity energy, like lifting a weight, like doing a sprint. So, you know, a mutual friend of ours once told me, um, can't remember his last name, but Anthony Vitargo, you know who I'm talking about. Anthony, I'm so he met, yeah, so he mentioned that, um, that consuming your creatine with carbohydrate was beneficial. Um, would you say that that is something that someone should do? I've always done it and it, you know, seems fine. There's no, no negative. You can't really feel creatine, right? But you, you will sometimes feel that extra, you know, little boost during workouts when you have it there. If you don't have it, 
you know, then you'll feel a little bit more fatigued. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? You know, we don't have to spend too much time on it. So quickly, you know, the first thing is, yes, we do get creatine in our diets. Naturally, it is predominantly from meat. So if you're not a meat eater, you have very little creatine in your, in your diet. And we know that vegetarians have very low creatine levels in their muscles. Um, and they benefit the most from creatine supplementation. There's a threshold of how much creatine we can load into our muscles. So um, taking more than recommended doses isn't, isn't helpful. So we have, uh, even in the average person, rarely does the average person reach threshold levels and it's at threshold levels where we get this greatest benefit. What you'll notice is you can do an extra, maybe an extra set certainly another maximum lift or two. And if you can do that at every workout, you, you get a better outcome. You build bigger, faster, stronger. And so um, the, the absorption of creatine uh, has been studied to death, really. We have thousands of studies on creatine. And what we know is that creatine monohydrate, old fashioned, cheap as dirt, creatine is, you know, in a powder is absorbed at a rate of about 99.8%. I mean, most of it is absorbed. We have seen that when you take creatine with carbohydrate, and it was a study that was done, it was, you know, creatine supplementation, sup- supplementation with grape juice many years ago, um, that, which is a grape juice is high in glucose, um, that absorption was enhanced. Um, we also know that you need carbohydrate to do high intensity exercise. So you may as well take carbohydrate um, uh, in order to, to do that exercise. So there, there, there is an enhanced absorption when creatine is taken with carbohydrate. So, um, just cause we're a little tight on time today. Uh, I wanted to get into a couple different things. So it, from all the things that you're saying and the questions that I'm asking you, um, it is suggesting that when you're in a deficit, um, that the conditions for mitochondrial reproduction are not favorable, right? Um, And that would be a little bit of the case for like a multivitamin, things of this nature. But at the end of the day, it seems like what you're saying is that good food and balance, right? At normal levels are gonna create the best opportunity for mitochondrial reproduction and allow for fewer or less degradation. Is that close to true? So, yeah, I I have to pop the bubble a little bit just because, you know, we are data driven, right? Mm -hmm. And I have to have clarity. So overabundance of of food, you know, um, too much sugar, too much fat, overweight, obesity, lack of exercise leads to decrease in mitochondria and dysfunction. However, when people lose weight and go on an energy deficit and, and we measure them again, well, that's in, we see improvements in mitochondria numbers and functions. And so 
it's it feels a little disingenuous for me to say that if you're in an energy deficit, you lose your mitochondrial numbers and function. In fact, it, I mean, it depends on where you started a little bit and a deep deficit, right? That's more of what we're saying. Um, that causes malnutrition. And when you're in a state of malnutrition, clearly your mitochondria won't be functioning at peak levels. So, um, so just- so, so if I say it differently, um, periodic fat reduction is favorable for mitochondria, but prolonged malnutrition is not. Exactly. And okay. yes, supplementing with a really good vitamin, mineral, you know, antioxidant uh, rich um, uh, supplement is, is useful. Making sure that you're eating a diet high in green leafy vegetables, you know, dark colored, rich produce, fruits and vegetables, all of that is super important. Getting, getting a plant rich diet so that you, because part of the dysfunction uh, in mitochondria is caused by oxidative stress. And so having um, a, an, an abundance of fruits and vegetables in your diet of all different colors and flavors is really important. So if you've been listening to this for the last two to three months, right, um, you haven't heard something that is very important for Susan, and it's the consumption of whole grains, right? And so what role would whole grains? It would be favorable, I would assume. Yes, super favorable. So, and I mean whole, whole grains. <laughs> so... You know, I, we're not gonna we're not gonna go through the whole story. But if you are purchasing a hundred percent whole grain flour and bread that is highly commercial, um, it it is most likely not a hundred percent whole grain. And that's a whole nother podcast that you should listen to. But just beware that the standard of labeling in the United States. Um, you're allowed to say 100% whole grain and it can be only 51%. So what I encourage people to do if you're not baking your own bread from really good flour that you bought from the mill somewhere near you, eat real whole grains, eat brown rice, eat uh, spelt, eat um, quinoa, eat amaranth, get whole grains, barley, all the different kinds of whole grains um, that you know you're eating the whole food. And those are extremely high in antioxidants. They are super important in, in your total well being and health, and especially the health and well being of your gut, which is another part of the story about mitochondrial health and risk of colon cancer. And, and those may be highly linked. Yeah. So my, um, grain of choice lately has been farro, right? So we've Wonderful. been making we've been making farro in the Instapot. I have a salad virtually every day for lunch, and so we have black beans that we make in the Instapot for fiber um, and some protein, um, and then farro, right? So um, the uh, I, I, I want to save the 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 big one for last. But what role would sleep have in, in any of this, uh, if anything? 
right? I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to bring questions to you like a complete noob, right? Um, so it's a it's a perfect segue because I we we just talked about reactive oxygen species or oxidative stress and lack of sleep. Um, well, let's do it the opposite way. When you sleep, your body has the opportunity to focus on and take care of um, reducing the reactive oxygen species that collect naturally. They are a part of energy metabolism. It is a byproduct of producing energy. That's why people who have high levels of exercise have high oxidative stress. And we must be very careful to, to manage that and um, with a, a time of rest so that the body can catch up on decreasing that oxidative stress. It is that oxidative stress that does damage to tissue cells that actually causes reduced function of mitochondria. It, re it results in the aging process. And so, so sleep is super important when we are looking at mitochondria and rejuvenation. The, the process of rejuvenation and replication at, at the cellular level and at the tissue level. Because most of this is really a discussion of aging, right? Right. Yeah. So um, lastly, uh, is I know you wanted to mention it, um, so we saved it for last, is the role of alcohol or, or overconsumption of alcohol. So, so it's a toxin, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> It is not a health beverage, no matter how much the beverage industry wants you to know that. Um, small amounts, we, we have had alcohol around since the beginning of time. And, our, and we know that, or maybe not the beginning of time, but at some point along the way, the body adapted to alcohol. And we have an enzyme, alcohol dehydrogenase, and it helps us metabolize and detoxify alcohol and, and move it out of the body. An overabundance going above and beyond our a body's ability to detoxify alcohol, it, it is doing damage. It is doing damage to the energetic pathways, to the ability of your body to make your own energy. Um, in fact, it it is an energy depressant. It slows down energy metabolism. It is a central nervous system depressant, slows down everything going on in your body, your body's signaling mechanisms, your ability to think and react. Uh, and so, so if you are drinking alcohol and you have a goal of weight loss, you're cutting yourself off at the knees. Yeah, that's actually probably the biggest change because when Eat Perform first started, my thought process was if you're going to do it, let's have it be part of the plan. And, and I believe that with virtually everything, um, alcohol being the one instance where, you know, I believe that abstinence is actually more favorable when you're in a fat loss phase. And once we made that change and made that you know, kind of suggestion to people, they did start seeing more acute results, right? And so I think, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot 
right? You talked about it with creatine. You talked about it with all these different little things is that as you're improving one little thing, a lot of times it's favorable for something else. And then you, you, you then, you know, once you've got that in line, it, it really has a multiplying effect and sort of that whole 1% better each day thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're a lot better in a very short period of time. I think that pretty much covers it, you know, unless you have something that you think we definitely did not go through. I, I know it's not something that most people think about, but I think about it a lot in terms of aging, right? Oh, I did have one thing. So brown cell, white cell, um, does that mean anything to you? Because I, re I do remember one discussion related to brown cell was more favorable for mitochondria production. Um, and it could have been something that I read and researched many years ago and I'm kind of getting wires crossed. So uh, this is, you're talking about adipose tissue or, or fat cells. And so there's white adipose tissue and brown adipose tissue. In humans, we don't have a lot of brown. Um, it is the more metabolically active tissue. It's why like bears can hibernate. It's, it's high in animals that hibernate. It is metabolically active um, at a higher rate. The reason it's darker is because it's typically higher in mitochondria. Um, as I said, what we learned in, 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 over the years since I was in high school is that adipose tissue does contain mitochondria. And whether brown or white, it does. And some of the really interesting data that we're finding is that in obese people, the mitochondria in adipose tissue, even in subcutaneous tissue, not like just the deep tissue around our organs, but subcutaneous adipose tissue, meaning the fat under your skin <laughs> that you can see, um, is that it, during obesity, it becomes less and less functional, more and more dysfunctional. And as you exercise and as you get healthier, you can increase those numbers and that function. And that in these people that I mentioned who are constitutionally thin that I mentioned, people always think, oh, they have a higher basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate. They just burn more calories all the time. In fact, we, the, the studies have been done those people who stay very thin, they do not have a lower resting metabolic rate. And in some of them, I mean, they don't have a higher resting metabolic rate, excuse me. In some of them, they have a lower resting metabolic rate. What's interesting is that they burn just more fat. Their, their mitochondria are more, maybe more functional. They are burning, they have a higher lipid metabolism. They are burning more calories, even eating the same amount of food as the average person. And it may have to do with not the mitochondria in their muscle cells, but the mitochondria in their fat cells. And so this is an open question. It is research that is ongoing. I love following this stuff because it's these people in the extremes that help us understand what's going on with 
the people in the middle with most everybody else. And so again, knowing that you are not stuck, that you can increase your mitochondria, that it's just exercise. Certainly weight loss does it, but in people who just lose weight, we don't see an, the same level of increase, not significant increase in mitochondria as people who lose, who, who diet or are on a weight loss diet and exercise. That's where we see this increase in mitochondria. Does that have something to do with why they can maintain their weight loss better than people who don't exercise? Probably because they're burning right. more calories. Yeah. All right. So I think that that covers it. It was an interesting topic. I knew it would be. Um, and, uh, you know, I really appreciate you kind of bringing light to that subject because I think that, uh, you know, especially as it relates to alcohol, as it relates to, you know, kind of the, the, the way that we teach dieting, right, where, where you kind of have these short bursts and then you, you move back to normal. You know, it's really more about longevity, cell function, all these different things. And, you know, while I did not know the specifics, I knew the brown cell, white cell thing, right? So I, I, I had done at least enough research to kind of have some basic understanding of, of that. Um, I do think, you know, it does sort of point out that, you know, if you can avoid becoming overfat, right? that that is your best health tool, right? And I think what you said is actually true and, and true of what we see in clients that we work with. There's not, obviously not a lot of them. Most of those people will come to us from the standpoint of body composition, right? But what we see with those people is one, their calories can, can get a lot higher, um, they don't necessarily, like you said, exercise like crazy. Some do, right? Um, but they just are able to maintain their weight in a way that that other people aren't. And I think, you know, like you said, all the things that are favorable become unfavorable. Alcohol consumption, lack of sleep, lack of exercise, you know, all these things add up. So when you start to reverse those things slowly, and I think that's what happens a lot with new people, right? Was when you start to become fit, it all feels overwhelming because you want to do it all at once. When in reality, you know, if you broke it down into these bits and pieces, you'd have a much more favorable response. So, all right. Well, I appreciate you being here. Have a great weekend. And uh, thanks for all the great information. You too, Paul. Take care. All right. Bye now. Bye.